from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a talk with a man driving sustainability at Ford, ING banks on the circular economy, an update on Project Drawdown, and 25 badass women shaking up the climate movement. It's Generation W, this week on 350. March 6, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. And joining me, as she does each week from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How's everything in Midland Park, New Jersey? It is quite balmy in Midland Park, New Jersey, almost 60 degrees the last couple of days. Spring is here. I've seen the hawks hunting for their nestlings. They must have a nest going already, and it's quite it's quite lovely, actually. And it'll get more so as we move off of uh, move on to daylight savings time this weekend, and uh, um, just uh, get to enjoy all of that beauty even more. And yeah, we had balmy Bay Area, although that's not necessarily a big deal for March, um, but uh, still appreciated quite a bit. But you know, it's wow, it's such an interesting time. I mean, more and more face masks. I had to fly to Seattle this week, and people. You know, mm-hmm. Seattle, by the way, because I don't want to miss a good um, a viral outbreak, so I go right into uh, lean <laughs> into it. Right, <laughs> but uh, well, you know, you know just it's funny. This is this is going to sound like such a crazy side effect, but I, I I think you know that my husband is a contractor for a living. Yes, and of course they have to wear masks to do sheetrock sanding and painting and so forth. And his he can't find them. And not only when he, and now when he can find them, they cost like seven bucks a piece. So he's a little twerk, uh, tweaked. Tweaked, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe twerked uh, too. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you think about it, I mean, like the people that actually really need, not that we don't need them. I mean, some people do, but the people that actually do need these things can't find them. And, and they're, they're super expensive. It's a little scary. Yeah. Well, we haven't been wearing them really here in, in the Bay Area, but I do have a bunch, a box of them in my garage left over from the fires from yet another catastrophe uh, when the air uh, in, in the Bay Area was way too smoky for to be healthy. And we were all walking to work wearing those uh, N95 uh, masks, the kind you're supposed to be wearing now with coronavirus. So um, I didn't haven't bought any lately, but I still have a half dozen. So I guess uh, I hopefully won't need them, but good to know I have them. But yeah, I, I understand that there's been a run on them. And what's weird also, Heather, is that there's been a run on grocery stores because people, I think, are assuming they're going to have to uh, shelter at home or something, or at least their potential for that. And among the things they're stocking up on is water. I mean, tons and tons of bottled water, gallons and gallons. What that has to do with, with the coronavirus or being at home, I'm not sure. But it, it just seems like a big uh, or at least a mild overreaction. Not that this isn't serious, but um, it is. it is interesting. And, you know... And we have to, you know, think about, is this the first of many of these we'll be seeing? Because it sure is an interesting time in that regard. 
Yeah, and that that brings me to your great column this week, Joel, Resilience. The thing that I hadn't fully appreciated, I, I think I was sort of seeing the different threads, was just how many different areas we're being challenged to be more resilient in right now. Like there's always shocks to the system, but it's like, there's a shock over here and there's a shock over here, but there's not, there's, everything's happening simultaneously. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just quite overwhelming. Well, that was sort of the point of what I was writing about because I, I've been talking about resilience a lot in, in speaking and, and conversations and, and, and define it as the ability to withstand shocks. And, and I'd say, you know, it's, it's not just climate. There's, you know, at least five categories. There's economic, political, uh, healthcare, terrorism, and, of course, climate. And it occurred to me the other day, it's like, holy crap, we're experiencing all five of those right now, or certainly four of them, terrorism being the one that's it's always in the background, but it's the least um, in the foreground right now. But, you know, Political, yeah, threats to democracy and all the chaos going on, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. And, and economic, well, we've seen the stock exchange do its yo-yo thing this past week. And uh, and then healthcare, obviously, and, and climate con- continues. And so I think this is really the first time we've kind of run the table on, on these sorts of shocks. And, you know, it's it's hard. It's it's confusing. It's chaotic, and and you know, and yet life goes on. And so it's trying to find that balance for all of us. And how do we just you know put one foot in front of the other on a day to day basis and still be aware of all these things and not let it rule our lives? It's it's just a really uh, well interesting is one word for it, but let's just call it an interesting time. Yep. Well, I don't know. have anything else to say about that, but let's talk next about what happened in our week in sustainability with the Week in Review. Well, Heather, I think we have to start off with this masterful opus that you did uh, for the second year in a row called 25 Badass Women Shaking Up the Climate Movement in 2020. It's, it's quite a work. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, see these 25 profiles of, of people, you know, well, uh, Kate Brandt from Google, uh, Anissa Costa from Tiffany, um, and, uh, Francesca DiBiase from McDonald's and Idan Dion from IBM and, and Suzanne Fallander from Intel and a bunch I, I don't know. And so that's really great. Uh, talk a little bit about, how you came up with this list. So the, the thing that I appreciate about this list is, of course, I am a woman and um, I have always been a little bit conflicted about putting, putting a label on people, right? I just want to talk about badass people, generally speaking. But, but you know, the coverage is the coverage and, and, and pointing out women in particular remains important. The, the gender equality Metrics that we'd love to see in the corporate world are still not there. Uh, there's a, a, some, some reports out this week in, in honor of International Women's Day that, are, that point that up. Because even though companies are saying that they want to do this, the, a lot of them don't even have a t- time-bound uh, metric on that. They don't necessarily have a, a specific goal. And they just say, yeah, we're going to do this. So, oh, felt, so wait, what's yeah. the this they want to do? I'm not clear on well, that. Well, so let's just take it as an example. Um, you know, have more women on the board. Okay, well, what percentage? Shouldn't it just be half? I mean, like, and, and at what point are you going to get there? So, you know, if you have 10% of uh, your board is now women, and are you going to try, are you trying for 40%? Are you trying for 50%? So a, a lot of companies actually have 
you know, they'll, they'll say they want to do this, but they haven't really kind of put their foot firmly down and said, this is our goal. And by the way, we're going to do this by five years from now or two years from now or whatever it happens to be. Some of the, so a lot of companies are talking a good game, but they're dancing around the actual execution of it. So, you know, in the sustainability profession, and, I, and, and you, you can attest this very well, there have, I don't know, for whatever reason, I am happy to say that there are a lot of women in this particular profession. As, as you know, we had a hard time figuring out who not to include. And oh, by the way, this is the second version. We had 25 folks last year, um, including Christiana Freires, who, who, of course, as we all know, was instrumental in getting the Paris Agreement done. And um, I, I was able to see her talk, actually, just, just before, prior to writing this piece. And, um, you know, I'm looking at Suzanne Fallander right now as I'm, I'm looking through the story, uh, the director of corporate responsibility with Intel. And she's been at this for 10 years. She's been talking. We, we talk today about integrating environmental, social governments issue, governance issues into annual reporting. And she's been pushing this for this for years. Um, and now it's finally coming to fruition. So it's really neat to see sort of the fruits of the labor of, of some sure. of these women coming, coming to bear, you know, it's really bearing fruit. Well, I'll give you a little data to, to put some uh, meat, if you will, on the bones of what you said around the, the number of women in these roles. Uh, and uh, this is from our forthcoming State of the Profession report, which is a biannual report done by our colleague, John Davies. And I'll give away one little data set that comes out of that. This will be coming out in the next few weeks. Um, uh, Ten years ago in our 2010 report, we noted that men comprise 60% of sustainability executives in large companies um, and 54% in smaller firms. So 60% in big companies, 54% in smaller firms. Um, and that, those numbers have flipped as in the current one, 58% of sustainability execs in large companies are women and 54% in smaller firms. So uh, that's, uh, it's now a majority, uh, almost six in 10 sustainability execs in large firms uh, are women. And um, the pay gap is also, uh, is also been closing. It, 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 it's now a very small gap, uh, whereas it used to be a lot bigger uh, the, there's still a, a differential, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty nominal these days. So lots of progress, in, at least in this field, in, in women and uh, men uh, equity, I guess. And uh, that's a good sign. But let's talk, just maybe give us a little bit of an insight of some of the people, maybe some surprising picks here that you made this year and, and why. Hmm. You know, Nancy Mann over at uh, Estee Lauder, uh, Senior Vice President of Global Corporate Citizenship and Sustainability. We've been thinking more about the, the role of the beauty industry and cosmetics and skincare in sustainability. And Nancy is uh, a, a lawyer by training and came out of the, the philanthropic world. So she used to work at uh, MAC Cosmetics and, and was in charge of of focusing there. And now she's really, um, she's, she's come out and, and made a big stand on toxics, right? So they've, they've done an assessment of the, their products and they're looking at more than 4,000, 4,000 product ingredients and developing biodiversity strategies around that. So that's a, uh, an interesting one. I also want to talk up um, Yolanda Malone over at PepsiCo, the uh, vice president of global snacks. Yeah, packaging. I was gonna- 
I was going to mention, I love that title, Vice President of Global Snacks Packaging. Yeah, and she's, <laughs> she, she's awesome. Well, so, and, and what I like, love about her is she used to be, uh, she's a packaging engineer, okay? She used to be at ConAgra, Nabisco, and she's really, you know, the, the company has said, okay, we are going to make um, 100% of our packaging recyclable, compostable, or biodegradable by 2025. That takes a lot of design changes. And so that's what she's focusing on. She's putting all of her, her, uh, her team through, through training in, in different metrics. And, and they're, they're, they've got a collaboration with, um, uh, is it Diamond Scientific um, to, to come up with new packaging. So she's really focusing on the sort of the science of it, of it if you will. So she's, uh, I think, uh, one that, that people might not expect, um, uh, Jeannie Rennie Malone, who used to be over at Prologus. Um, she is the vice president of global sustainability now for VF. And she's been there since last September. Um, I'll just say a moment about her prior work. Well, she helped basically put Prologus, the big uh, real estate company, um, on the map with as, a, as I think they're in the top five solar installations in the United States on top of the roof. So um, it's, a, it's a big company that does warehouses and so forth. Now she's over at VF where she's um, helping them really dive more deeply into uh, circular economy. She, she just, uh, they just had a $557 million green bond that, that closed at the end of February. So and v- VF that could go who, on. And VF <laughs> for people who don't know is Timberland, North Face, um, uh, Eagle Creek, uh, Jansport, and a bunch of outdoor brands, and yep. um, and so lots lots there in the fashion and apparel industry. So, um, well, that, that's great. I mean, this is uh, so good, and of course, you do this in conjunction with International Women's Day, which I believe is Sunday this coming weekend. Sunday. So we, yep. we we yep. we ran this on Friday uh, today, and and. Uh, Thank you for doing this, and it's just an amazing list. I really encourage you to take a look. But let's uh, move over to the topic of green chemistry, because we had a piece by one of our star contributors, Meg Wilcox. Um, one of the last pieces coming out of our, our Green Biz 20 event on uh, a session looking at green chemistry and innovation and how... Uh, how do we sort of look at uh, harness green chemistry, which is a set of principles? It's not just a little bit nicer chemistry. It's green chemistry is based on a, a set of twelve foundational principles uh, for chemical design that came out of uh, uh, academia about fifteen twenty years ago. Uh, but it, it's been implemented behind the scenes that it hasn't been really talked about that much, except in a fairly small circle in, in ke- of chemists. But um, this was a great story of a panel we had on uh, green chemistry, building a vision for innovation. And it it really shows uh, companies like Gap and 7th Generation, how they're putting this to use. It's not just a concept, not just a nice thing to do, but actually leveraging these principles in the design of their products and, and, and materials, particularly in a circular world. Yep, and I, I, there are two things that jumped out for me. One was the fact that, I, you know, I don't know, green is a bad word or something here, but it, apparently the, the term is sustainable. Uh, they're trying to use, uh, at least some of these companies are using that internally to help their teams understand that this isn't just about being 
like a tree hugger or nicer to the environment. These are like, there's a this sourcing issue, there's a human health issue and so forth. Um, and, and also it reminded me of the role that, that some of the big retail giants have played in helping get this conversation to a, to a place where it's actually bearing fruit. Again, I'll to go back to my fruit tree analogy, but Best Buy, Target, Walmart, um, their, their CVS have really taken a leadership position on saying, we don't want these things on our store shelves. And they're, they're setting very sort of clear buying signals uh, across their supply chains that are, are sort of, I think, helping uh, make the research and development really start happening. There's a, a, a new group called Chem Forward as well, funded by Google Target and some others that are, are trying to, to, to come up with the, the solutions collaboratively. So, okay, if, the, if it, we're not getting enough progress on our own, well, let's, let's get together and get this done. So I think that's encouraging. Well, speaking of collaborations to uh, move things forward in sustainability, let's raise a cup of joe to our colleague Jim Giles, who wrote a piece this week called Can This App Solve Our Coffee Cup Problem? Uh, dealing specifically, when he, Jim is the uh, uh, editor of, of the, our new Food Weekly newsletter and the chair of the Verge Food Conference that's coming up this fall. And uh, talking about reuse of uh, coffee cup reuse, in other words, uh, you go into your into your uh, favorite coffee joint and with a, a cup or borrow one of their cups. There's a number of different models. It focuses on a uh, an app from Muse. That's M-U-U-S-E. It's a startup that, that, that provides reusable borrow a cup coffee cups in coffee establishments. You use one and then you bring it back and there's a deposit and things like that. And talked about the viability of it, can it get to scale, his own personal experience and you know, I have to say that this is, you know, one of those things where um, it's a big change of habit on our part, you know, but, you know, we've we've, we've done that pretty successfully with bringing our own bottles of, for water uh, instead of carrying around plastic uh, water bottles the way we used to. And but but it doesn't necessarily go so smoothly. And obviously, coffee is different than water. Uh, you don't get it everywhere. You usually like what you like and prepared the way you like it. And um, so anyway, he talks about sort of the the ins and outs and the challenges and and you know also the opportunity here. Uh, still a work in progress, but I love the way he brought his first person account to this. <laughs> I totally do too. I, I, um, I think for me, you know, and I, I don't go out to my favorite coffee store that frequently, um, because I usually don't drink coffee, but the only thing that I found myself sort of wondering about was the, the return, right? So like you have, I mean, from a small business standpoint, if you were the coffee company that was offering this and someone has to come back to you to bring the cup back, that's cool because they're going to probably order their next cup of coffee from you. And, and so there's a circular model of uh, purchasing, you know, by, by having this, this offered and not having it available elsewhere. But at the same time, you know, what if you're out of town and traveling? Like, do I have to now put a coffee cup in my knapsack too? Um, and is it the Muse one? And can I use my own? And you know, you, like I, we all buy our own water bottles, right? You don't have to use theirs, which, you know, kind of might make this more difficult. That, that, that one piece of it kind of has me a little puzzled. I get that, that you need the QR code and, and the sort of way to track it, but 
I'm wondering. Maybe you pick one up at the airport as you get off the plane and return it when you get back on the plane. Who knows? There's all kinds of opportunities there. But yeah, we'll figure out uh, what will get us going uh, uh, coffee-wise and not have all those cups. Uh, Stay tuned. Earlier this week, Project Drawdown, the nonprofit research organization looking at carbon removal and carbon sequestration, issued a new publication, the Drawdown Review. And I thought that would be a good opportunity to talk with Jonathan Foley, the executive director of Project Drawdown, uh, and uh, find out what's been going on. We haven't heard much from Project Drawdown in uh, quite a number of months or a year or so. So joining me now is John Foley. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe start off with uh, a little bit of an update. Uh, What's going on? I haven't heard a lot, as I said, uh, about the project. What's happening behind the scenes? Well, we've been very, very busy for the last year or so. Uh, As a lot of folks on this uh, uh, podcast might know, uh, Project Drawdown published a book back in 2017 called Drawdown, which really reviewed uh, the state of the understanding we had at that time about climate solutions. Uh, That book reviewed a hundred different solutions to climate change and tried to put numbers on them about how many gigatons of carbon could they prevent or remove from the atmosphere, uh, as well as what they might cost to implement and then to operate. And uh, the book was, it turned out to be a New York Times bestseller. It's still going like gangbusters. And I think I spoke to people that people wanted to know more about climate solutions, not just the climate problem, but also I wanted to see which ones might be more effective than others in certain ways. So uh, a couple of years have gone by now, and we've gone back to the foundations and done it all over again with better models, with better understanding of the science behind these climate solutions, with a better understanding of the technology and engineering, but especially the economics, uh, the cost of some of these solutions has changed dramatically in just the last couple of years. And so we realized we wanted to do this kind of research on an ongoing basis. Uh, In fact, we're going to do this kind of review every year um, to keep up with a changing landscape of climate solutions. So this week, we launched the Drawdown Review as a free uh, downloadable PDF kind of e-publication from our website, also a whole new website itself for people to learn about these climate solutions in kind of real time uh, to keep up with this very quickly changing landscape where we're learning more all the time. Well, now that you've learned more and you've run the numbers again, uh, any significant changes? What have you found? Well, the bottom line message continues to be a good one, that uh, we continue to believe very strongly that at least according to the physics and the engineering and the economics, we have the solutions it would take to bring the world to climate security. That is, uh, we do have the solutions that could keep the world from going above two degrees warmer than normal, or maybe even 1.5 degrees warmer than normal, the so-called Paris Accords targets. We find that with solutions that happen to exist right now, we have the solutions we need to get there. And they would pay for themselves very quickly and then some. They're physically possible. They make sense. They're all doable. But they today, of course, look very uh, far from being implemented in terms of our political will and how power and institutions are set up. But uh, the science and the economics shows we have the solutions today to make it work. And we looked at a bunch of different scenarios and different ways to look at it. 
Uh, like before, a lot of the same kinds of solutions still rise to the top. Uh, for example, a lot of things in the very inexpensive renewable energy category, like utility-scale solar PV or onshore wind, those are always near the top of our kind of solutions list. As are things sometimes we forget about, like uh, food waste, uh, which is a big problem in the food sector, or shifting to more plant-based diets, especially in rich countries. That continues to be at the top. Also, uh, some things we don't sometimes think about, like education and healthcare, especially for women and girls in developing countries, that continues to be a very high solution on our list, as is um, addressing refrigerants. The chemicals used in like refrigerators, air conditioners, freezers are hydrofluorocarbons, so those turn out to be kind of super pollutants to climate change. So getting a handle on those continues to be important. Before we, we ranked these kinds of solutions, but instead of just one ranking, we actually present two. Um, we present uh, the rank of solutions you need to get to two degrees and the rank of solutions we needed to get to 1.5. And they're actually a little bit different because uh, some of them, uh, you know, it depends on the path you choose and how hard you step on the gas pedal, so to speak, to get to this. So um, the exact ranking of what's number one versus number three, number five, that changes a little bit depending on how you approach climate safety and get to climate uh, drawdown, we call it. Uh, but the top, you know, the things that are always in the top 10 are usually in the top 10 and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I wouldn't take the rankings super literally one to two to three, but things that are in the top, in the middle and the bottom are very consistent always. Oh, but but we journalists live for ranking, so that's really disappointing, but we'll have to soldier <laughs> through that. Uh, I love I the know. 10 key insights that you have here and uh, uh, things like uh, the co-benefits that, that these solutions have um, that we, as you said, can actually, this goal still is within sight that um, we, of course, need to, as we do dry down, need to reduce or eliminate emissions of, of, these, of these gases and on and on. And one of them was about uh, the financial uh, viability of these in crystal clear, as you say, uh, the financial case and the savings significantly outweigh the cost. In fact, I think uh, the, the over, overall net operational savings, you said, exceed net implementation costs four to five times over. So uh, you know, if these things make so much money or have so much financial return, uh, why isn't there sort of a clear-cut business case? Or how do we get the, the market forces and not have to rely on the political system to step in? Well, I mean, the disconnect here, of course, is that um, the economy is made up of many different players. Uh, we have private capital, public capital, uh, and we have decision-making and policy, but also in different markets, but also individual businesses, households. And uh, the cost of these things are sometimes borne by some people and the benefits are received by others. So, you know, that's the disconnect. It isn't just money, it's money and power and who controls which. Um, that's always the case. So at the macro level globally, if we could kind of get our act together and see that, you know, the political will, but also the business insight and the longer term foresight, and uh, us at the individual level, uh, if those actually were swimming together, the business case is clear. But some of those might have to be invested by the public, you know, by tax dollars at first, because it just, you know, can't be written off in a quarterly earnings statement. Uh, but yet the long-term benefits are very, very clear. But within that, uh, the individual solutions, clearly there are some that already have a great business case. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear in much of the world right now, building an entirely new wind or often solar PV utility facility is cheaper than operating your current coal power plant in much of the world. 
that's not even including the environmental cost of burning coal. That's just simple, you know, direct uh, cost and benefits on that. So that's a really good change. And that's something that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. Or the cost of batteries, the cost of EVs. At some point, uh, you know, I actually believe very strongly one of the best things we can do is uh, hit that tipping point when climate-friendly technologies and practices become cheaper and better than their old fossil alternatives. Um, and that's when change just precipitates instantly, uh, whether, you know, policy or not. Um, and uh, that's where I'd like to see more policy, more investment, more philanthropy. It's kind of, you know, how do we tip the next couple of things, not just solar panels and electric cars, but the other tools we need for climate change? How do we just make them so cheap and so good that it's no longer a debate among policymakers. It's just like, duh, we're going to do this because yeah. it's the best technology available. Yeah, well, that is the goal. So before I let you go, um, I know you're also looking at some launching some new other aspects of, of draw, Project Drawdown, including Drawdown Labs. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, we're, um, that's the other thing we've been busy doing uh, uh, kind of under the hood for the last year is building out some more specific programs that connect our research and findings to more specific communities that can use it. So Drawdown uh, Labs is one which is focusing mainly on the business community. Um, what's been really exciting in the last two years or so is uh, since Paris, a lot of companies are starting to make commitments uh, to being carbon neutral, to something like a Paris Accord kind of commitment that, we, you know, uh, company X will be carbon neutral by 2040 or 2050. That's great. And I'm so happy to see that. But what we'd like to do is take another big step even beyond that and say, well, how could businesses not just be carbon neutral, but be carbon beneficial to the larger world, not just their own operations? If you will, almost like scope four, <laughs> you know, like kind of how can businesses work with their customers, their employees, the communities with which they operate, and find ways to find solutions that help all of us, not just themselves. And uh, we launched it kind of quietly with the company Intuit. Um, you know, they make, you know, TurboTax and QuickBooks. Uh, a lot of us use their products. Um, they committed, thanks to some of our work with them, uh, last fall to going 50 times beyond being carbon neutral. It's kind of 50x carbon neutrality. And to do it by the year 2030 in only 10 years, they call it their 50 by 30 plan. I think it's one of the most ambitious climate plans I've ever seen. Uh, we're also working with Ingersoll Rand, who's making a huge commitment, again, far beyond their operational footprint, but to use the power of their business to help climate solutions in their customer base and in the community. And they make train air conditioning, uh, train air conditioners and a number of other things, particularly in the, in exactly. the refrigerant area. Yeah, and that's really important to, you know, the building sector, to electricity sector, to the refrigerant gases, but also the cold chain our food travels through. Um, I remember they told me that uh, Frost King, one of their subsidiaries, controls about two-thirds of the freezers used to move food around the world. So that's important, too. So they have a, they have a disproportionate um, positive role to play uh, that is actually much bigger than just the footprint of uh, their own company making these things. Is how those things could be used to affect better climate solutions. Uh, and you can imagine other companies um, like Microsoft, which we aren't, we're not yet working with, but we'd like to. Uh, that they've also gone beyond kind of carbon neutrality, and that they want to go back and erase all their historic emissions. So the idea of Drawdown Labs is to how do we work with maybe a dozen or so companies, a smaller group, to really kind of catapult what climate commitments mean 
over the next few years to kind of uh, stake out a new a new bar, uh, if you will, for companies to reach to. And we'd like to work with these kind of real pioneering companies to develop those strategies and see what's possible and then share that with everybody else so they can kind of copy it and move faster and move quicker. I love the idea of businesses, you know, complying to climate change and cleaning up their own their own mess, so to speak. But if they can help the rest of us uh, kind of help where civil society and governments are still falling behind, maybe we can look this thing. This is something where businesses could could go to really truly lead and do more than just kind of uh, their own internal compliance kind of mindset. Well, as usual, Project Drawdown continues to be inspirational. You can find the just published uh, edition of the Drawdown Review at drawdown.org. Jonathan Foley is the executive director of Project Drawdown. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me. One big focus for the sustainable finance team at ING, the big bank headquartered in Amsterdam, is financing investments in startups related to the circular economy. In 2019, it surveyed several hundred businesses about their plans, and this year it's turning a spotlight on consumer attitudes and interest in the concept with a survey of more than 15,000 consumers in 11 countries. One of the high-level findings from the research is that a majority of the respondents felt that they had a personal responsibility to address environmental sustainability. GreenBiz Associate Editor Tiana Anderson spoke with Anne Van Riel, Head of Sustainable Finance for the Americas with ING. Here's that interview picking up with Diana's first question. So ING recently released a report called Learning from Consumers, How Shifting Demands Are Shaping Companies' Circular Economy Transition. Um, and you all surveyed about 15,000 consumers across 11 countries about their attitudes and their interactions with different brands. Um, and you also interviewed companies about their circular economy strategy. So I'm super curious about uh, why it was important for you to survey both consumers and companies for the survey. Yes, and, and this has um, been part of a um, annual survey that we have been doing in the last three years. The first one we did a couple of years ago in 2018 where we really looked at sustainability strategies for companies, um, seeing how American uh, corporates are looking sustainability strategies and if they are incorporating sustainable finance in, in their um, funding decisions. Last year we specifically zoomed in on circular economy practices at corporates to see if they're in, including that in their operations and in their strategy and obviously we, we work with corporates so our focus uh, was for those reasons uh, on the corporations but we thought for this year it would be interesting to see what the consumer behavior and attitude is to circular economy topics, because obviously that impacts how uh, constitutes build their products and services um, and um, and targets consumers for uh, for that. So that was the reason that this year we we primarily focused on the consumer view. Right, and it sounds like, well, I know also uh, just from some of my reporting that consumers are kind of demanding more from uh, different companies. So can you share like some high-level findings from the report specifically about consumers? It's interesting to see because we, we went out to three different regions, Asia, US, and, and Europe, and 
I, I think not completely surprising is that the the knowledge and the attitude of European consumers on circular economy behavior is a little bit um, more entrenched than than in the U.S. and in uh, and in Asia. Um, what is interesting, I think, one of the most interesting points of the survey is that the majority of all respondents actually say that they feel they have a personal responsibility to address environmental issues in their buying behavior. 61% of all respondents in all the regions said that they believe that their actions could have a positive impact. So that's important. So attitudes are really that there's a, an empowerment at the consumer level that they can make decisions and, and drive uh, environmental practices. And I think that the other interesting thing, and this might not be completely surprising if we just look at our own behavior, is that consume, consumers are still thinking that convenience is one of the most important drivers of, uh, of decision making as well. If you, if you can get something very easily and it's readily available, it's, they are much more prone to make the right decision, the right buying decision, than if it's you know, harder to get or, or, um, or more difficult to, uh, to obtain. It seems like some people are uh, willing to go that extra mile if like companies are doing more. Is that accurate? Yes, and I think it's um, you know if you look at all the consumers, it's much more the younger generation that is much more aware of uh, what influence they have, and they're also much more demanding to companies when it comes to you know, their transparency on um, on how those products came about and and, um, and they're making buying decisions based on that. So it's, it's definitely something that is shifting. And we think that over time, these young, younger consumers, if they're becoming a bigger share of, of the consumption um, market, they will have big influences on, on how companies need to, to act and operate. So in the introduction um, of the report, you all say that there's like potential business gains for companies that apply circular economy principles. Can you describe what that potential is? Like how can companies benefit if they start to transition from a linear to a more circular model? Yeah, and I think that there's different aspects to this question. Um, one is companies don't want to be left behind. So if that younger generation is making buying decisions, they want to make sure that they are still relevant and that their product still meets their uh, demands and, and standards. So so it's a bit of covering the downside risk of remaining relevant with, with your product and your service. Um, on the upside, there's also uh, big opportunities if you look at uh, what additional revenues can be uh, can be attained if you apply circular uh, circular models. And one of the interesting examples in the survey is Patagonia talking about how they are actually offering people to bring in their own old wear and they resell it within their own stores. So they have a, a secondhand store within their own um, within their own stores. And you would expect this would cannibalize their normal line, but it doesn't. It actually increases overall sales. So those are really great examples on how circular practices can actually drive revenue and, and profits. Yeah, that's actually something that I'm super curious about because it seems like more and more companies 
are doing things like that. Um, but as companies start to implement different circular practices, are there any hurdles that they have to overcome? I feel like you all kind of touched on that in the report. Can you share any of those findings? Yeah, and there's there's indeed a couple. Um, one is uh, that consumers are often not aware of the choices that they have. Uh, so if you look at the electronics industry, for example, not all companies provide information on how their product uh, can be reused or uh, brought back in. There's also just the the mere infrastructure and convenience. If, uh, like you said, consumers don't want to walk the extra mile, so if you have to bring your re your unused clothes back to the store instead of you know just throwing it out in the garbage, I think a lot of people are just still making the decision to to not bring it back. And then there's also cost. If you know, if you, especially if you look at the the fast fashion industry, where there's a lot of companies offering very cheap clothes, uh, consumers are more likely to to buy that than the longer term, more sustainable, but also an initial higher cost clothing. So so cost is still a, a very big part of it as well. Were there any surprising? findings from the report uh, that you didn't necessarily expect that you feel like listeners might find intriguing as they maybe implement some circular practices into their own companies? Yeah, I think the surprise was that we actually found quite a few companies that we weren't necessarily aware of that were already implementing circular practices and they had very uh, good ideas about it. and those come in different variations. So you can have an H&M that uses recycled material for its uh, for its fabric, but you can also have the view of a Burberry who's highlighted in our report that says, you know, we're taking back clothes and we're making them tailor making them and we're repairing them so that they last longer. And we want our uh, consumers to be happy with the garments and, and have them wear them over a long period of time. So there's there's different models emerging and different applications. Um, and I think that's very exciting because it means that there's no one size fits all, but we're we're really seeing shift in behavior, not just on the consumer side, but also on the company side. Yeah, I'm excited to continue to follow this. And I'm, I'm guessing that you all will continue to follow as well. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Katie Ferenbacher, senior writer covering transportation for GreenBiz. And lately I've been thinking a lot about the future of the big automakers. The large car companies are facing unprecedented change in their industries as more automakers shift to electric vehicles. There's also change coming from autonomous vehicle technology and connected car systems too. And that's not to mention the immediate global disruptions that can spontaneously appear, like what's happened with the coronavirus. Automakers have complicated supply chains that weave across countries like China, and the coronavirus has already sent companies scrambling to secure supply chain car parts. A big question I've had is with so much uncertainty, what's the role of sustainability? Does reaching sustainability goals become a lot harder when there's restructuring and chaos? Recently, I jumped on the phone with Ford's chief of sustainability, Bob Holycross. Holy Cross has worked for Ford for close to 30 years, and three months ago, he was promoted into the top environmental officer spot. The day I spoke with Holy Cross, Ford had just announced their own restructuring plans. 
This is what Holy Cross had to say about sustainability at Ford. One of the things that we've done in terms of our operating model internally is really integrated and embedded sustainability in every aspect of our business. The analogy for a basis of comparison is kind of how companies manage quality, right? Quality is not, you know, a, a part you add on to a particular product at the end that somehow makes it, uh, you know, defect free or what have you. It, it is inherent in every part of the business, um, you know, from the initial design and, and development all the way through the production cycle and, and uh, manufacturing process and whatnot. And we've taken that same, same approach internally with what we call our integrated sustainability framework. And each function within the organization has kind of their high-level sustainability uh, metrics and, um, you know, uh, action plans that address, you know, these broader goals around our aspirations uh, to get there. So the beauty of having a framework that gets it integrated across the company is, you know, as we have to, you know, move quickly to adapt to, um, you know, the changing world and, and, and uh, you know, as we have different changes within our organization, the one thing, you know, one of the things, it's, it's not the only thing that stays constant is the, the integration of sustainability across it. So in terms of my job and my interface um, with my peers within the company, regardless of how we're structured on an org chart, sustainability is at the heart of, of everything we do. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We now publish six every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. As always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.